Hi everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, your host, and today, my guest is Will Cottle, CEO of Spark Geo. We caught up with Will at GeoInt, so his audio's a little noisy. Hi, Will. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, John. It's great to join you here. Yeah, really glad to have you. So for our listeners who might not know who you are, let's set it up. You're originally from Scotland, living in Prince George, BC, which is considered northern BC, but it's the lowest latitude you've ever lived at? Yeah, yeah. I like to tell people it's the center of British Columbia. It always puts a smile on people's faces. But yeah, I grew up in Edinburgh, studied in Aberdeen. So being in northern British Columbia is definitely the furthest south I've ever lived. So in North American terms, it seems being pretty far north. And I think everyone north of us in BC kind of resents us being called northern BC because really we're in the middle. Like gateway to the north. Gateway to the north, I like that. Is a reasonable assertion. Yeah, technically the middle, geography-wise. Yeah, although Vanderhoof calls itself the geographical center of British Columbia. I don't know what the difference between geographic and geographical is. That's definitely one for the linguists amongst us. It must be important for them, yeah. Yeah, so if you ever want to go and research that, there's Vanderhoof, British Columbia. Sounds like a road trip to me. As CEO of Spark Geo, you lead a large and growing team of people who are intimately versed in geospatial tech, but you often work for clients who aren't geospatial at all. Isn't that right? One of our key markets are people who I think are overtly geospatial, but don't really self-identify as such. And that might be social networks. It might be satellite companies. It might be any number of different technologies who we look at it and go, well, obviously you're using geospatial and location technology, but they're not necessarily thinking in those terms and therefore don't necessarily have the appropriate expertise or they haven't invested in typical technologies. So they need a little bit of help and would love to be the company that they come to. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, there's so many problems out there that we think are geospatial because that's where we're focused. But for everyone else, they're just problems to be solved. And it's one way of getting in there. Absolutely. I think of geospatial as a community of practice. Some people think of it as an industry or as a vertical, but I'm much more comfortable with it being very horizontal and touching lots of different people in lots of different ways. So thinking about it as a community of practice allows us to not be limited to a particular toolkit or not be limited to a particular way of thinking, but to try and understand where location adds overt personal and business value, where it adds overt difference to one business over another. And in reality, that's really where we can add most value to the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that your team has worked with a number of clients, including recently Arturo, a company that does some work in the insurance space. And everybody out there has insurance. And I think everyone lately has also seen their insurance rates go up. So I'm curious, can you tell me a bit about the work you did with Arturo in the insurance space? So I can only talk very generally about the work we did, of course. In general terms, Arturo provides an API for roof-based house insurance metrics. So looking at roof properties, whether it be the quality of a roof, like the size, those kinds of metrics, we helped with the creation and support of their team. Their team's super talented, but sometimes you just need more of that talent. So in the creation of some data pipelines and in the creation of various different kind of software development data stacks that allowed those APIs to run at tremendous speed and tremendous scale. Because in reality, when an individual is looking for a quote on their house, that agent needs to be able to turn around that information incredibly fast. So they're typing in an address and they're getting a 
responds incredibly fast based off what you and I as geospatial people would say, oh, it's Earth observation, it's remote sensing analysis. But in reality, they're just getting a good quote, very sort of granular quote for insurance based on A, the insurance company's models and B, Arturo's properties that they're creating based on roof and sort of house parcel metrics. It's interesting, you know, recently my own house had the roof replaced. It was damaged in a hailstorm and we, like any good homeowner, got a couple of quotes. And ironically, all of the quotes were using a very similar system, using earth observation, satellite data, automated measurement. And it was incredible to see the proliferation of that technology. Absolutely. And I think it takes a lot of the risk out of the actual house roof update process because the roofer can see exactly what they're getting into. So A, it makes your job as a consumer easier because you get these quotes quickly. B, it makes it much easier for the roofer to understand what kind of box of frogs they might be opening. Speaking of a box of frogs, the notion of connected vehicles and insurance, I think, is an interesting space as well. As we get more and more connected data, it's going to drive different decisions in the insurance industry and the way we're able to access those products. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. The more information we get, the greater the need is to be able to parse that information and to understand the context of that information. And more often than not, internet information sits within the context of a geography. Geography matters, whether it's a cultural difference, whether it's a locational kind of distance kind of a difference. The geography of a piece of information is absolutely pivotal. Often it's thought of as metadata, but in that metadata, there is intrinsic value. And More often than not, that's part of the extraction process that we're helping businesses with. And in terms of context, do you think context is something we extract from data or something we add to the data? Because is it inherent in what we see from space or what we collect with our instruments? Or is it the sort of thing that we know as people? I think it's both, frankly. And also, I would argue that data is opinionated. And you certainly see this in sort of government municipal data sets. You have this notion of a piece of data having the fingerprints of the person who collected the data, who designed the data set, and then how those fingerprints can change if the custodian has changed. So you can see different patterns of humanity in actual data product. I find that fascinating, actually. But it does remind us about things like intrinsic bias and what bias we create in the creation of novel data products. Like, what are we missing? What view of our planet do we misinterpret because we've created this intrinsic bias that we didn't necessarily consider but is present because of our fingerprints on a particular data set? Right. It's those inherent biases and those sort of fingerprints that I'm most interested in in this show because those are the things that tend to run in the background and that people don't understand or don't see on a day-to-day basis. So is there an example you have of that sort of bias or opinion within a data set that really speaks to that? Yeah, I've definitely seen it in municipal data sets. We do a lot of work with open data. I am a big fan of government open data. However, I would argue that open data is also like the Tower of Babel. It's getting taller and taller and taller. Very few of the data sets kind of reference or talk to each other in any meaningful way different formats, different attributes, different this, different that. So within the context of a particular data set, it's incredibly valuable. But more often than not, a company like mine is asked, oh, can you roll up this piece of data for every single municipality in North America? And it's like, well, that's going to be a lot harder because none of these data sets are quite the same. Some of the municipalities don't do open data, blah, 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 blah. That's the interesting sort of human element of this story is that 
open data is amazing. We can share things, but it tells you a story about the sophistication of a particular unit, and it tells you a little bit about how a particular municipality might even think about data and even about their community members. So open data as a concept is incredibly powerful, and I'm a big fan of it. Having some structure to open data would be, as a consumer of the opportunity, having some structure would be astonishing. For sure. And I think the question about structure then is, who gets to put their fingerprints on that structure and whose values get encoded into it? Because if we were talking about fingerprints, it's going to be all over that structure too. And who is, in air quotes, right? And I think that's who owns the truth. And I think those are very sort of deep and difficult concepts to get around. And in the end, more often than not, as geospatial people, we're just looking for any data that does anything. And a key piece of the geospatial workflow is this notion of cleaning data, like data cleansing. And I think that's part of our job is to analyze and determine the quality of a data set. And I think we think about intrinsic biases a little bit. I don't see examples where data sets get actually turfed because we see that there's too much bias in it. I think that tries to get managed. And more often than not, we're just desperate for any data we can get. So like my mommy said, something, you get what you get and you don't get upset. You know, <laughs> but you have to work within that and providing you account for those biases, then you can deal with things. Looking at data with an open mind and be willing to question it is not necessarily being without complication. It makes me wonder, I'm at a point in my career where I haven't done data cleaning in a very long time, but I wonder how much of data cleaning is cleaning versus adding my own fingerprints to it so it aligns with my values and what I'm hoping to see in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a worthwhile thing. And of course, like this whole discussion gets very confusing when you start thinking about deep fakes and start thinking about kind of artificial geographies being created either for metaverses or indeed if we see a prevalence of imagery being taken of places in conflict, and we see it in the Ukraine a lot, what kind of measures can we have in place to feel comfortable that the pictures that we see are, are indeed telling an appropriate story of an appropriate event? That becomes really interesting and confusing, but now we have this kind of plethora of different constellations. We can start having more than one pair of digital eyes, if you like, looking at a particular event at a particular time. And then suddenly you have more than one eyewitness to something. That's right. But I think conceptually, we're at a place of enormous uncertainty. And I think deep fakes are coming into our worldview. I'm at the GeoInt conference, and this notion of deep encryption of data feeds to inform satellites becomes actually very interesting, something I hadn't even considered before. I guess it's important now. The technology exists, so we have to manage for it. Right. And it goes back to that old Adam Savage quote, I reject your reality and substitute my own, you know? Absolutely. If someone can reject your sensor data and substitute their own, how could you be confident that you're getting what is actually the truth? Yeah. I think these are questions that we just, as Earth Observation people, just need to be cognizant of. I think in reality, I live in commercial land. So the chance of someone providing a deep fake of some building metrics to get a better insurance quote feels pretty unlikely to me. For some people, this is a very considered reality. So it's interesting for us to pay attention and just observe and try and sort of qualify how much of a concern that needs to be for me and my community. And I mean, it's certainly very interesting. And as we see more sensors launched into space, we will see, I always think it's very interesting considering having more than one source of data to tell you a story about something that's happening on the Earth's surface about change. 
And I think of different sensors and different data sources as being different opinions of the same arguments. So how can we formulate a hypothesis around a change event? Just thinking that through using different data sources allows us to have different viewpoints. Well, conceivably, one change event to get a better opinion, if you like, a more rounded opinion on something that's actually happened. Right. It becomes more of a discussion. You get to see opinions absolutely from different points of view and different sensor technologies. Getting back to insurance and flooding, in November of 2021, your home province of BC suffered some devastating floods. The Sumas Prairie was formerly a lake that was drained in the 1920s and used for agriculture. With climate change affecting rainfall and storm patterns, how is geospatial tech being used to protect the people who might live in a former lake bed and not even know it? I have difficulty with this notion of geospatial technology protecting people. I think geospatial technology has a place to measure and monitor and be involved in management decisions. But I think we're in a place within sort of a climate change reality where we need to do that measuring and monitoring to figure out how to protect people. Because I think there are individuals who find themselves in deeply tragic circumstances without any warning whatsoever. I think that's really problematic. We did a really interesting piece of work recently. Our kind of uh, Earth Observation Research Team observed that we had a heat dome in British Columbia. Like The first thing we observed is, oh my word, British Columbia has been a complete disaster for the last year. So we had heat domes, we had fires, we had atmospheric rivers, and then we had landslides, and then we had floods. And then we had like wild swings of, of temperature as well, but that was less of a concern. But those first few features we wondered if there were linkages. And more often than not in geography and in certainly physical geography, there's a level of connectedness. So we started looking at that connectedness and we did a piece of work and you can find it on our blog. We found that there is a connectedness between what is in effect a massive heat event, the heat dome, and ultimately the floods. And you think, well, that's crazy. How could the heat dome cause floods? That, that this shouldn't happen. But there is a linkage because it causes fires. Fires remove vegetation especially when it's a high fire severity index, and you can find that out from NASA's Fire Information Service. So it burns out the roots of the vegetation, and it leaves a hydrophilic layer. Hydrophilic layer means water flows instead of being absorbed. So if you have a situation where you have an atmospheric river, and as we all know, it can rain in British Columbia, and occasionally it can rain a lot. That's what we're now calling atmospheric rivers. I think in the old days, we just called that a rainstorm, and now we have this kind of slightly more dramatic name. But nevertheless, atmospheric rivers, drops a ton of rain. If it drops a ton of rain onto steep-sided slopes that have been subject to fire with that hydrophilic layer, the water flows instead of being absorbed. That means you get these pulses of water that are coming down the hillside and destroying things in their path. Now, the actual net or the gross flow of water in any of those rivers actually remains the same. That hasn't changed. So we're not getting more or less rainfall. What we're getting is these pulses because it's not being absorbed by the surrounding vegetation. And that is really problematic for our infrastructure. That infrastructure fails because you're getting this massive pulse of water that we just simply wouldn't have had before. It would have been slowed up, slowed down. And now we get these pulses. It washes through bridges, brings down landslides, breaks downs. That's the problematic piece. And I think that seems to be the story of climate change too. It's not necessarily that things are getting colder or hotter. It's that we're getting these extreme fluctuations, which cause enormous difficulty. And those extreme fluctuations are connected and lead to the next event, right? The first severe event leads to the second severe event, which makes the third event even more severe when on its own, maybe it would not have been so bad, right? Yeah. That notion of water flowing or being absorbed 
is interesting too, because you also see that in the Gulf region of the US, where you have large numbers of places that have turned wetlands into parking lots. Well, guess what? A wetland used to absorb water. Parking lot, water flows, a direction. And if you're unlucky, that water ends up in your basement because that's where it's going to go. If stormwater drains aren't effective and that region gets a lot of hurricane activity, a lot of storm activity, the less capacity the land has to absorb the water, the more that water turns into kind of a pulse event. And I think what I found interesting in starting to look at this subject is for geospatial, the presence or absence of water is really the key metric. The presence or absence of water within the context of an asset, so whether it be your house or a bridge or something, is actually one of the core pieces of information we need to be able to manage for to help people understand their exposure to climate risk. I think that's a great way to put it because these places are going to experience those pulse events, as you put it, and we need to understand the impact of the water moving through these areas, right? And, and its impact on the infrastructure and thus on the people, especially if you're living in a development that used to be a wetland or a prairie that used to be a lake. You're disproportionately likely to be affected by that. And I think this soon I'm wondering, okay, what can I do as a geospatial guy? I'm not going to build a dam. I'm not going to build bigger bridges. I'm not going to do that kind of stuff. Conceivably, what we could do is help people understand their climate risk. So if you're in Kelowna in British Columbia and you're trying to buy a house and you're choosing between two houses, wouldn't it be nice to know if one is in a historic floodplain and one was not? That information is surprisingly hard to find. And going back to that open data discussion, it's all over the place. There isn't a consistent understanding of flood risk. So as a consumer, I just want to buy a house. I don't know anything about floods. Like on a scale of one to 10, how much risk am I taking on by buying this property over that property? I would be thinking about that as a key differentiator. Same with wildfire. I live in Prince George. and probably where I live, probably not going to get affected by floods, I don't think. Closer to the chapel, but a couple of benches up. But boy, we got a lot of trees. That makes me a little bit concerned. In the winter, I'm happy. In the summer, I'm like, oh, I really hope this doesn't go wrong. For sure. And the average consumer, the average person out there who is buying a house may not think to look for flood risk, fire risk, etc. But I suspect that their insurance companies would have that information to some hand. And they could be affected there in terms of their ability to even get insurance, right? Where I heard stories out of the floods in eastern Canada this year where people were not able to rebuild because they were deemed to be at too high of a flood risk. Yeah, but I find that interesting. Were they told that before the flood or after the flood? Well, in this story, it was after the flood. And I think that's a great question. And that's the scary piece. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to know before the thing goes wrong that I'm exposed to something? Like, maybe you can't do anything about a massive flood event that happened in the eastern Canada. It's like, you can only build so big a wall of sandbags around your property. Like, there's only so much you can do in that situation. But at least you know, you have this knowledge. But for some people, it's a complete surprise. And I think that's the scary piece. And a house is... More often than not, the biggest investment you're ever going to make. Like, boy, British Columbia is largely built on real estate these days. So you don't want to get that wrong. It's a big personal expense and a massive personal stress. I look at those pictures of the Sumas and I'm like, oh, behind every pixel here, there's like a deep personal tragedy. That's a horrible thing. Exactly. And there's no sense in giving those people, and I told you so, well, you're living on a dry lake bed. You should have known better. Sure, but it's too late for that. Were they informed at the time? Could they have known better? Were they living with a can't-happen-to-me mentality? Or did they have all the data to make a good decision? Or did they just buy a place because it seemed nice? 
And it's like, well, there's a whole bunch of other houses here, so it must be all right. That's not unreasonable. It's like someone just built a whole housing estate here. Why would they build it here? It must be fine. It'd be yeah, crazy. I trust them. And then you have geospatial people looking at the data, shaking their heads, going, this is ridiculous. Yeah, you know, well, I wouldn't live there. That's ridiculous. But of course, the price is right. That's great. You like hindsight 2020, but not everyone has access to that data. Not everyone has the willingness or the ability to do that stuff. So that's a place where geospatial can inform through, like I say, measuring, monitoring, and telling stories. So for the fire and flood work, we put together a story in the form of a map. So you could sort of be told this story. And it's quite complicated, like scientific stories. We wanted to take it real easy to help people understand these chains of events. And I think geospatial visualizations can have a really positive effect in that storytelling piece. And I will also couch this by saying, this is not a quantitative piece of scientific research. Like we're a private organization. There's only so much time we can spend on this scientific piece. So I would fully encourage other people, A, to second guess it, and B, to go out and do some more robust study into the geology of the land base and to take this much further. And there are people eminently more qualified to do this. But from an anecdotal perspective, from a qualitative perspective, these are the events that we saw. These are the chains of events that we were able to model to some extent. And that's the story we were able to tell. And if we can tell it, I'm sure other people can tell it too. Exactly. And I think when telling that story, you made it accessible to people who don't have a geospatial background or whose first inclination might not be maps. And I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for other similar products. These days, if you go on MLS and look at a house, one of the things you see is the walk score. How walkable is that neighborhood, right? So perhaps we ought to have a flood score and a fire score and some of these things. So it's a simple rating out of 10. Absolutely. Just a climate risk score. Right. This house is four, that house is five. Oh, why? Oh, this house is four because it's in a thousand year flood zone and this house is five because it's in a 700 year flood zone, whatever it is. Like just understanding that difference is really helpful and helps guide people and just opens their eyes to the risk around the biggest investment they're likely to make in their entire lives. Exactly. I think there's lots of opportunity there in the future to see those kind of products evolve and to make them accessible to people who don't have that background and that deep technology insight. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. So geospatial used to be like the realm of governments and militaries and stuff, but that's an application. And I think climate change and indeed the changing planet and measuring landscapes changing I think that's a really interesting, very consumer-centric, very commercially-centric use of geospatial. And I think the companies like mine are very much motivated by those use cases. I mean, in terms of like business strategy speak, that's kind of a blue ocean. Really few people are doing work there, and it's deeply impactful. So that's exactly where we want to be pointing our organization. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Will. That was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciated digging into it with you. It's an absolute pleasure, Joe. Thank you very much. Enjoy your time at GeoInt, and we'll connect again soon. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, or wherever you find your podcasts. See you later.